those Christian groups who follow a liturgical calendar. We've been discussing themes related to Easter, the cross, and the resurrection. Next week, the focus shifts to the ascension. So this week will be the last Sunday with a liturgical focus on the resurrection. The reading this week is from Acts 17. And it's a famous narrative about Paul's visit to Athens, where we hear Paul's gospel message to a people who have not been socialized in Jewish traditions and are unfamiliar with Jewish theological frameworks. In fact, this group, composed of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, would have been not only critical of a Jewish God, but also heavily invested in a critical appraisal or criticism of Greek and Roman gods as well. So it is no wonder that they had to compel him, Paul, to attend one of their meetings and of all places on the Areopagus, the, sim- the symbolic epicenter of Greek philosophical discourse of the day. It is here that we find evidence of Paul's Hellenistic Jewish education. The author of Acts has him quoting Greek poets in his attempt to embed the Jewish god Yahweh in the Roman, the Greco-Roman pantheon. As he says, Now what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. Verse 23b. And he can swing the anvil of criticism against idolatry as well as any Jewish teacher, metaphorically smashing the ideological support for idol worship. As when he says, We should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. Verse 29. And as a good Jew, he can reframe talk about the gods, plural, into a sharp focus on God talk, singular. For Paul, God was the creator of all things, the sustainer of all of the cosmic systems. And as such a sustainer, he is alive and near to each of us. Now, this actually would have been well received by the philosopher-minded crowd at the meeting. I think if he had stopped there, he would have gained honor in the sight of all present rather than just a few. But, in verses 30 and 31, he continues to unfold his understanding of God's present activities through the lens of the messianic activities of Jesus of Nazareth. Paul's criticism of Roman culture as consumed with idolatry, 
is thoroughly Jewish. Idolatry is such a complex human preoccupation from the beginning of human history to the present that there are many definitions. So since my definition is rather terse, I want to state it twice. Idolatry is tied up with the preoccupations, the practices, and predispositions that focus on self-centered and self-centering things as having ultimate significance. So Paul states that the ignorance that is tied up with preoccupations, practices, and dispositions that focus on self-centered and self-creating things as having ultimate significance must no longer be left unchallenged in the light of this man Jesus and the God path he followed his entire life. In fact, because of the way that Jesus appropriated and carried out his messianic vocation, Paul says that God's supreme trust has been given to him by appointing him to be the man to dispense justice, by which I take Paul to mean to make the world right. The word here is the word that is translated righteousness, which simply means to make right. Paul is quoted as saying that God has made this divine declaration of trust evident to all human beings by raising him from the dead. Okay, now lest you were listening to that last sentence when the, jo- when the dog jumped in your lap, I want to be transparent and say that I just said something that might cause some eyebrows to raise. This is a different interpretation than you would get from, say, Bible translations or from other pulpits or commentaries. For instance, uh, let's look how that last sentence of Paul's speech is translated by, say, I don't know, the one I'm, the translation I'm using is the NIV, the New America, uh, the, the New International Version. It says, He, God, has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. End quote. Now, you wouldn't know from this that the word for proof is pistis, the word normally translated faith or trust. So again, it seems to me in making better sense of the passage to understand the divine action as proclaiming God's supreme trust in how Jesus lived his life so that he appointed him, Jesus, as the way to make the world right, rather than, say, as some kind of final proof that Jesus is the judge of the world. 
The text just doesn't say that. Since this is the last Sunday that we will focus on the resurrection for a while, at least from a liturgical calendar perspective, I'd like to flesh this out a bit. Uh, pun intended, by the way. First, how was his speech, with its reference to resurrection, received by those listening? The writer of Acts says that some received it well while others sneered. Now why, I wonder, did some resonate with the message while others did not? Was it the God talk, or maybe the idea of resurrection, or maybe even Paul's presentation? You know, he was perceived, after all, to be a dabbler in verse 18. Now, again, I don't mean to bash on the NIV, but it has babbler, which misses the point that Paul is was perceived as an unschooled novice. Okay, actually, let's move on. Actually, who really knows? As we're getting Paul's story through the writer of Acts, and who knows how many sources he had. But I still want to press here a little. Dionysius, Damaris, and others actually became followers due apparently to what they heard. Now, why? We know at this time in the first, in the mid first century, there was a religious cultural shift occurring within Roman society towards a monotheistic understanding of the universe. There were actually parallel resonances of this happening within the philosophical traditions as well, away from a pantheon, many gods, and towards a monistic or unitary view of the workings of the universe. Indeed, Dionysius is reported to be an actual member of the Areopagus. Paul argues that his God creates and sustains all things, all peoples, and all creatures. That is Paul's God. Roman religion was intimately connected with the maintenance of Roman social institutions, just like most religions are. Family, work, travel, all aspects of life were tied in to divine power through participation in sacrifice by the populace, uh, every, you know, the common people, and through construction of representations of the gods by the elites in terms of temples and uh, structures. But for many, these traditional forms were becoming less satisfying. Now, Paul comes presenting a driving source of power that is near each person, and this power is represented in a man who walked the walk and talked the talk to such an extent that he earned the trust of Yahweh himself, who is not just another lifeless idol or statue. Well, this apparently made enough sense to Dionysius, Damaris, and the others that they became followers of Paul and attached their aspirations, their directions in life 
with the group formed around Paul's gospel. Okay, so why did some sneer? It apparently had to do with the idea of the resurrection. Now, I want to press here as well, just a little. Was it because they had never heard of the idea of resurrection before? Now, many preachers relying on some prominent biblical scholars and others would say, That's right. Jesus' bodily resurrection was unique and unprecedented, and so foreign to the so and so was foreign to the hearers, and they scoffed. The argument this argument continues that Roman culture considered the physical body as something negative, and so the bodily resurrection was absurd. Now, I don't have time for a full discussion about the form and meaning of the resurrection of Jesus, but I, but I do have two last points to comment on in this, uh, in, in this endeavor. First, if this was the case of a negative view of the body and a disparaging dismissal of Jesus' resurrection, then why would millions of converts to Christianity in the first 400 years cherish the idea of physical resurrection, idea com- an idea completely opposed to what they held as true? Actually, to the contrary, Roman culture held the body in some high regard, as attested to the importance of sports and the importance of health and medical technology. Second, it is significant that what came to be known as Christianity was not a religion or I'm sorry was not a religion originally promising anyone immortal immortal flesh. For instance, Paul says that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. That's in 1 Corinthians 15.50. The idea of a physical resurrection became absorbed into the Christian view of resurrection, but in response to and in a different context a little later on. But the idea of God raising Jesus from the dead had already become perceived as a powerful event that had taken on tremendous symbolic power as a primary vehicle to communicate that God was active in the world. This is what I think Paul is saying. And the way that he was active was through Jesus the Christ, with his challenge to make the world right, through peace, love, and love's social counterpart, justice. Now, unfortunately, this radical message of Paul that Paul was attempting to disseminate was rather quickly hijacked by the dominant social and political power structures. Christianity became aligned with the state. Orthopraxy gave way to orthodoxy. Love and mercy for the oppressed became entangled in salvific regimes that ended up othering the others we were supposed to be embracing. 
and the radical gift of grace was gradually transformed into a transaction bereft of the power to transform humanity. So that the Western Church, and that includes the Church in America today, is in decline due to a brutal history a violent soteriology, a destructive ecology, and a moral complacency. Is it not time to follow examples like Dionysius and Damaris, who chose not only to listen and learn, but to become a part of the solution? Perhaps we can use a word of the Lord to the children of Israel when they were standing on the shore of the Sea of Reeds and seeing the dust from Pharaoh's army charging down on them. They did not see a way forward. They were indecisive. But God told Moses to say to them one word, Esau the Hebrew word Isahu, which means go forward or get going, trusting that the sea would open up. Perhaps we need that same word today, Isahu, get going, because if Jesus could gain God's trust, perhaps we, through Christ, should do the same. Put love on the pedestal over condemnation. Make the arms we pick, we pick up in the name of God the loving arms of the Father who welcomed his wayward son. Shift our vision of hope f- from an idyllic, perfect future to trying to make the environment as sustainable as possible here and now. And help us to work through the morass of misinformation, disinformation, to make our our lives count as disciples of Jesus. So to us right now, I say, Esau.